What do Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google have that your company does not? The answer is not more revenue or greater reach. So what is it? Hi, I'm Scott Smith for Gartner ThinkCast, and that question was the focal point of one of the more noteworthy sessions during Gartner Symposium IT Expo 2017 in early October in Orlando, Florida. It's also the focal point of a new book by Scott Galloway, who delivered that symposium presentation. Scott Galloway is the founder of L2, and his new book is The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Scott sat down with me right after his presentation in Orlando. Here is our conversation. We're here again at Gartner Symposium IT Expo 2017 in Orlando, Florida, and I am very pleased to welcome to the program L2 founder, author, NYU professor, Scott Galloway. Scott, thank you for joining us. Thanks for uh, having me. Now, you've just finished a presentation here, and let me make sure I have the name uh, correct. It's the... The four, yes. uh, the hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. They're such iconic names, iconic brands, and yet this suggests something we're not looking at when it comes to these big names. What is their hidden DNA? So I think each of them foots to and calls on a pretty basic instinct. Google is our God. We have a need for a super being. Our minds are robust enough to ask incredible questions, but not advanced enough to provide all the answers we need. And as the society becomes more affluent and educated, its reliance on church and a super being declines. So there's this void of modern day anxieties. And I believe that Google fills that void with a level of credibility that no other institution has in terms of praying and effectively praying and sending a question up into the universe, hoping for some sort of divine intervention from an all-knowing, all-seeing being that sends back an answer. Will my kid be all right? Symptoms and treatment of croup into the Google query box, sends it back. Google is our God. Facebook is love, uh, creates empathy, connection, mostly with pictures. Our species needs to be loved and to love others. Amazon is our consumptive gut, taking the nutrients, making sure that we have more than we need. The penalty for too little is starvation. The penalty for too much is things that have a lag, a diabetes or a lethargy or gluttony. But we have 10x to 100x more than what we need in our closets and our cupboards. More for less has always been a strategy that's in vogue. It's Walmart's, China's, and Amazon's strategy. And then finally, Apple, I think, appeals to our reproductive organs. And that is, it is the new symbol of wealth and power. And it's basically when you carry an iPhone, it's communicating to the world that you have good genes and increases your selection set in terms of mates. So our need for a God, our need to love, our need to consume, and our need to procreate, I think these four firms have tapped into that, disarticulated who we are as people, and then reassembled them in the form of for-profit companies that's created more economic value or shareholder value than the GDP of India. What then is it we... In other companies, other organizations, though, take away in terms of a lesson because, again, you're talking extremely large concepts and mm-hmm. companies that are very global that most of us will never achieve the scale of. So what is it that is the lesson, though, for all of us in that, these connectivity issues you speak of? So uh, a couple things. One, I think right from the get-go, you need to figure out which organ or which instinct you're appealing to. So Nike appeals to our very real instinct to be competitive, which creates evolutionary progress. Louis Vuitton sort of communicates to our procreation and our desire to feel closer to God when we see some uh, beautiful luxury item. So I think right out of the get-go, figuring out what organ or what instinct is this product catering to. And then there's lessons from all of them. When Google 
the ability to use network technologies and the plumbing price and processing power to create products that age in reverse. So every time someone types something in the Google query box, the product gets better for everybody else. And nine of the 13 companies that have outperformed the S&P 500 for the last five years, and there's only 13, have this kind of Benjamin Button reverse aging feature of them. And that is every time you turn on Waze, it updates the GPS, pings your phone, and it updates traffic patterns and makes those traffic patterns and reports better for the other users. So an ability to try and figure out this network effect seems to be kind of intrinsic to the companies that are adding a great deal of value. Apple's decision to forward integrate into vertical retail is an interesting lesson. While everyone's saying retail is dying, controlling your distribution, if you can afford it, is a tremendously powerful brand building tool. I think there's lessons from all of them in terms of M&A, in terms of their distribution strategy, their marketing strategy. So some very general ones that all four have in common, being perceived as a good citizen, vertical distribution, storytelling. I would argue Amazon's core competence is the ability to paint a very compelling vision and then show progress against that every day and then constantly communicate and reinforce that vision. If you think of traditional media, they've essentially become the outsourced investor relations department for Amazon. So their core competence is in operational analytics. It's storytelling and a vision that results in access to incredibly cheap capital in the capital and debt market. So there's a lot to be learned from each of these companies for an entrepreneur and almost anyone at any stage of the life cycle. And it sounds like it's shifting around our approach. It sounds almost like where we talked in the past of corporate citizenship, for instance. Mm -hmm. Here it seems like connecting almost on a person-to-person level, only one of those persons is a a company, an entity. Yeah, so we personify these companies. They take on human characteristics. It's great from a branding standpoint. Where it's led us, though, is sort of a strange place, and that is we now worship at the altar of innovation as opposed to character and kindness. And we have to remember that these companies they have one mission, and that is to increase shareholder value. They're not concerned with the condition of our souls. They're not going to take care of us when we're old. So we assign them these very positive attributes, and we're generous with them and give them what I would refer to as the mother of all hall passes, when in fact we should just be treating them like any other company. And they should endure the same scrutiny as any other business. And I feel as if they get a level of worship and a level of again, sort of different treatment from the media, from regulators, and even from um, society as a whole. So they're for-profit companies, full stop. They're not saints. This isn't Jesus Christ. It's a company, and we need to treat them like that. But what you're saying then is it's they're so known for innovation, and we're so more focused on what they've accomplished or where we think they might take us, Mm -hmm. that that is where we forgive their sins, as it were. Yeah, again, we find innovators, you know, Elon Musk— And Steve Jobs, they're our new Jesus Christ. They're kind of our modern man idols. And as a result, we overlook the fact that perhaps these companies, Apple licenses its IP to its Irish entity and then inflates the revenue in low-tax environments and decreases the taxes in low-tax environments. And I think Apple gets away with more than they would if they were all state insurance. We idolize these companies and no legislator or regulator, maybe with the exception of Margaret Vestager in Europe, really wants to go after these companies because the way to look older and no one wants to look older is to not get it and not getting it is not loving one of these companies. So I think it's the idolatry, the, I call it the gross idolatry of youth and innovation. I don't think a 55-year-old executive would be allowed to be the CEO of two firms, but Jack Dorsey, because he's, I think, 40 and maybe he's a little bit younger than that, actually, he's maybe in his 30s, 
we see all these guys, you know, these young internet people, we think of them as almost having sort of this mythical, like supernatural, like uh, capability. Taking it back to all of any organization, uh, when trying to find this need, when sitting down and say an entrepreneur and you're trying to think, where am I taking my idea? Is it coming up with the right product, the right service, and then assigning this need? Or is it trying to tap into for something to identify of, hey, this is the emotional connection and I have an idea that might lead to this? What, what is that approach in the planning phase you'd recommend? Well, I think it's the, the product's going to be first. I think in technology, you're going to have, typically technology companies are product-like companies. So they come up with an idea. Hopefully, they're addressing an unmet need. The biggest mistake in technology is inventing a technology for which there's no real need. But so coming up with something where you think there's a marketplace, but then pretty soon as you start to think about the cultures, you start to think about the positioning of the company, what organ or what instinct are we appealing to here? How does this, at the end of the day, make people feel, and what human need are we satisfying? But I think it's sort of parallel track, and I think it's helpful or instructive to go through the exercise. And is it something that really needs to develop somewhat organically? It would seem like there's a danger of trying to force fit into an emotional connection that you could come away looking silly or completely off base. Sure, although I would argue that most just don't do it at all. And I think it's good. You might decide to ignore the decision and the product, the market, take you where it's going to take you. But to think through, okay, at the end of the day, the companies that have grown massively all very squarely tap into a pretty basic instinct. And from the beginning, you know, no one says, oh, I want to build a small company. People think I want to build a big company. So if you're lucky enough to get a product into the marketplace, it's resonating. Very early on, I think Apple decided they were going to be a luxury brand and tap into emotional needs and figure out what those emotions are. I think it's a worthwhile process pretty early in the process. You mentioned, for instance, going back to the idea of giving them as a pass, as you said, or more uh, leeway than we might others. Mm-hmm. Does that, and um, back up and say, part of that comes from being innovators, but does that also create the room to innovate because people are willing to do people that give them the leeway to allow mm-hmm. them to fail a little more than others might? Yeah, but I think it's gone kind of off the rails. So access to cheap capital, loving startups, the ecosystem in the U.S. where we give startups more capital, the ecosystem in the U.S. that's been key to our success that we, you know, people say we embrace failure. We don't embrace failure, but we tolerate it. Whereas in Europe and Asia, a lot of people would argue they just, you get a scarlet letter within your first failure uh, on your chest. So there is a reverence for innovators and entrepreneurs, but I think it's gone a little haywire with the most successful entrepreneurs. I think we afford them way too much license. I don't think... The New York Times or the Washington Post could get away with selling ads to the intelligence wing of Russia. I just think that we just wouldn't tolerate it. But with Facebook, it's like, well, how they're so successful and they make so much money and there's so many ads. Can we really hold them accountable? Like, well, of course we could. And even old media says, well, it'd be impossible to check all their ads. And we're not talking about the realm of the possible. We're talking about the realm of the profitable. It would just mean they'd be less profitable. And for some reason, we've decided these companies that their profits and their frictionless business model are somehow sacred, whereas old economy should endure those costs, whereas you know, new economy media companies, I know they're different, they're innovators. 
Does part of that grow from the internet culture where these companies grew and have followings and we still have that mentality in our heads of the original innovators, the original hackers, we don't want rules, this is a space where we can do the Wild West, as it were, please don't come in with regulation. Is that part of it too, that while they are now bigger than a GE, for instance, or a General yeah. Motors, they we don't want to assign them those regulations for fear it might trickle down to the rest of us in our just our free speech back and forth. Yes, yeah, it's a good point. We want a certain amount of rebel gene in the economy, and we want people who question the status quo. We want entrepreneurs who adopt sort of a ready-fire-aim attitude. But at some point, when Amazon's amassed a half a trillion dollars in market cap, should it be paying taxes? And right now, since 2008, Amazon has paid $1.4 billion in taxes. Walmart has paid $64 billion, despite the fact that Amazon has added the market capitalization of Walmart to its value in the last 24 months. And people would say, well, okay, but they're reinvesting, which is good for the economy. That's a really good argument. But what happens if all companies sort of adopt this break-even model and start reinvesting? I mean, certain assets would go up. In some ways, it would be bad for the economy, but we still got to figure out a way to pay for our firefighters and our teachers and our soldiers. So, I mean, there's other systems, and I'm not saying it's the right system, where once you get past a certain value in Brazil, they tax you on your gross revenues. And I'm not saying that's the right method, but it seems strange that you can get to be the fourth or fifth most valuable company in the world without paying any meaningful corporate income tax. What do we need to do, whether it's as a public, as the government, or so mm -hmm. forth, as consumers, to put a little more of the onus on them? And I'm watching, I, what comes to mind is, for instance, the early talk now with Amazon and their uh, HQ2, I think yeah. it is they're calling it, and states are battling it already. We'll cut this, we'll cut that, we'll give you. So it looks like they've got the upper hand. How do you shift that conversation to make them more on a level playing field? So <laughs> that's a correct question, of course. So what to do? I think the first thing is we have to acknowledge that these are great companies, but the companies. And the role, in my view, the role of any company, and I'm parroting Peter Drucker's words, so I agree with the management thinker Peter Drucker, that the sole mission of a company is to create a middle class. And so we need to look at these companies in the context of, okay, they need to create wealth and billionaires because that's motivating and inspiring for people. But if they're creating so much General Motors, or uh, I think it's about 60 or $70 billion in market cap, have half a million employees. Facebook has a half a trillion dollars in market cap with 17,000 employees. So what happens when the most successful companies are spreading the majority of the spoils? A third of the S&P's gains are in five companies among a smaller and smaller base of companies. And we're under the impression that there's more of these people than there are because on the front page every day, there actually aren't that many employees at these companies relative to the traditional kind of economic tides of yesteryear. So one, just force that they endure the same scrutiny and obligations as the rest of corporate America. Because what's happened is we have this chaser effect where a company wins a lottery and becomes an Amazon or a Facebook, and it's not luck, it's skill. Well, it's some, some luck, but a lot of skill and hard work. But then we show up and double or triple their winnings with favorable tax treatment and avoidance of regulation, et cetera. And also, I think we need to elect people who will hold these firms accountable. I think we've entered a system where if the government takes on the tech, especially in the U.S. right now, government's going to lose. They just are better resourced, better PR departments, better communications. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think we just hold them to the same standards that we hold the rest of corporate America. 
Let me bring the conversation back to where we began, and that was we're talking about their hidden DNA. And while what you've also looked at is how that hidden DNA has allowed them to go beyond some of the normal standards and rules that we follow, also, as we were saying, there is something for all of us to take away from it to achieve. So what is it we should be asking ourselves to make sure we're on the right path to putting our own organizations onto the positive aspects of that, which is tapping into our prospects and our customers and those we partner with, their emotions, that extra connection. So a lot of this just comes down to, in general, sort of brand building. And I'm not talking about advertising. I'm talking about just positioning your firm and saying, beyond the product itself, what emotional need do we tap into? That's where you get irrational margins. As people feel smart, or, you know, remember, IBM was the company you could trust. It was going to be more expensive, but you wouldn't get fired for hiring IBM. And that was a kind of a trust. Apple was think different. You felt more like part of the creative class. So again, trying to figure out, all right, what am I, my company L2, the benchmarks, we tap into sort of this competitive notion and how important it is for companies to benchmark each other. And then insight is a brain function and, and makes people feel good and secretes a hormone when they feel they have access to some sort of information that makes them more competitive than their peer group. So in sum, I think, I used to think that the best business book you could read was Strunk and Wide Elements of Style, that the best tools for business people was to learn how to write well. Now I think the best textbook is a book called Sapiens, and that is to learn more about who we are as people, what triggers our emotions, why we behave the way we behave, is key to any company that aspires to be one of these companies. And no matter how small you are, you should start out aspiring to be one of these companies because you may not make it to 500 billion, but some of these attributes can help you get out of the garage. Some of these attributes can help, you know, understanding. To understand these companies is to understand business. So really understanding who they are is not only instructive around how to build a business, but it helps us understand who we are as a kind of a society. Scott, thank you very much. Scott Galloway is the founder of L2, a professor at New York University and the author of the new book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. He spoke with us following his keynote presentation at Gartner Symposium IT Expo 2017 in Orlando. I should quickly add a program note. Gartner is an impartial independent analyst of the information technology industry. All content provided by other enterprises is expressly the views of the speakers and the enterprises. The information should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of said enterprises, products, or services. So, If you're looking for more on what separates the best companies and a wide range of other topics, I do endorse that you check out our other Gartner ThinkCast conversations at Gartner.com slash podcasts, plus the Gartner webinars at Gartner.com slash webinars. For Gartner ThinkCast, I'm Scott Smith. Thanks for listening.